Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, the first five verses. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. May God bless this extraordinary word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Dear Lord, help us understand the gravity of what Jesus just said in that last verse. Help each one of us to recognize what that means to us individually and to look at ourselves and ask ourselves if that applies to us as I pray that your spirit will indeed bring out as we go through this text this morning. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one thing that we as humans are very good at doing is throwing God's gifts back in his face, of rejecting the very good things that he gives us, trampling on his gifts. He gives us his son, and not only is he crucified and rejected and mocked and spit upon when he is here, but throughout the ages, right down to the day, to the day most of humanity rejects him. He gives us his word, his revealed word, and we don't read it. He gives us the ability to enter into his presence in prayer and talk to the God of the universe, and we don't use it. He gives us the church, a time of fellowship and a place for edification, and we avoid going to it. He gives us such beautiful things like like, like marriage and love and womanhood and manhood. And we've thought about just about every way that we possibly can to trample on that. But through divorce, through adultery, through fornication, through same-sex marriage, and now through gender fluidity, we just simply throw it back in his face. We are very good at not living up to or not understanding the great gifts that God has given us. Another one of those gifts is children. What do we do? We murder them by the millions every year. He gives us life and we choose death. Now, the reason I'm bringing that out is because this morning where attention is going to turn to another one of God's great gifts that we, for the most part, reject. He has given us a Sabbath. He has given us one day in seven to worship him, to glorify him, to be in his presence, to be quickened by him, a day of rest, a day to recharge our batteries, a day to regroup so that we can face the fights of the world, a day that we can focus on him and him alone and grow in our spiritual life and edification. And we fill that day with just about everything that we can but him. And we try to make it as miserable and as mundane as every other day in the week. Now, don't get me wrong, this morning my intention is not to chide you about the way that you spend the Sabbath. You'll get enough of that next week. So that's not my my focus this week, okay? My focus this week is to try to change our perspective because what I see Jesus doing in this passage is literally causing us to rethink one of the great gifts that God has given us. One of the great gifts he has set aside for our purpose, for our education, and for his glory. He wanted to save it, in a sense, from what it had become as a legalist had it and turned it into something that was a burden. And I think too often, even today, that people see the Sabbath as a burden, something I've got to take time away from all the things I'd like to do and, and, and go to church or give it or I'm not supposed to do these things on the Sabbath day. Well, I think we're missing the point. And that's my prayer this morning is that before we leave this place, 
That we understand what a great privilege we have of all people on earth. We have the privilege of worshiping the Lord of the Sabbath. And I hope that I can show you just how extraordinary that is. Well, I know I told you last week that that we were going to, we had come to the culmination, if you will, of Luke's discussion of the good news. And we've been going back through the chapters four and five all the way through to sort of bring that out. And I chose my language very carefully because I didn't want you to get the idea that it was over. It was the culmination. It was a climax. But what happened in the fourth and fifth chapters is still hugely important to what we're going to see going forward. Luke tends to build on platforms, and he's just building on one event after another. And this event that we're going to see this morning is very dependent on several things that we've already seen, especially in the fifth chapter. So let me bring those out to you. First of all, I want you to remember the healing of the paralytic. Remember, he was passed down through the roof, and Jesus, in in an astounding statement, didn't say, hey, pick up your bed and walk like everybody expected him to do. He said, your sins are forgiven. Now, the Pharisees were there, and that was the beginning of the confrontation between the two of them. The Pharisees were there, and they rightfully said, wait a minute, only God can forgive sins. Remember that? And so Jesus says, you're 100% correct. He didn't say that. But what he did is he proved that, okay, just so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, pick up your bed and go home. All right? He showed that he was indeed God in the flesh. Now, another thing I want you to see is when he told us that, he used a title, Son of Man. And the title was associated with a clear statement of his divinity. We're going to see that again this morning. The second thing I want you to remember is the whole discussion that we had last week and actually the weeks before that of the difference or the problem with religion, that the religions of the world are religions of human achievement and Christianity is the only religion of divine accomplishment. And Jesus made the statement, very profound, that you're not going to be able to fit this new Christianity into the framework of that old, tired, legalistic religion. And the quintessential example of that is going to be this morning in the way that they viewed the Sabbath. Jesus says that the old wine, I mean, I'm sorry, the old wineskins cannot hold the new wine because if they do, it's going to burst and the wine's going to be spilled. And we talked about the idea of continuity of continuance there that there was something that was worth saving in other words the wine was what they wanted to save so you're going to put it in new wineskins well part of that wine brothers and sisters is the sabbath jesus wants us to rethink the sabbath not in a legalistic term but in the terms of the privilege of the bride feasting with the bridegroom. And that's the third point I want you to remember. That beautiful image that we saw of Jesus sitting in the middle of all those sinners, the worst element in Capernaum, reclining at table, eating a meal with them. Now, of course, that's right after Levi's conversion and is probably an evangelistic outreach. But what a beautiful picture of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus in the midst of those he came to save. And when the Pharisees got upset at him, you remember what he said, how can you ask the wedding guests to fast when the bridegroom is still with them? And, 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 and that brought that whole metaphor of the bride and the bridegroom and that Jesus is the bridegroom and we as the church are the bride and we're the ones that are lost in the sewer and he comes down to save us, to fetch his bride and to take that bride back to his father. Well, I think if we're going to properly understand the Sabbath, we need to understand that feasting with the bridegroom idea. Because in a sense, every time we gather together in Christ's name, that's what we're doing. Whether we take the communion or not, we are feasting with the bridegroom. Now, with those three ideas firmly in our minds, let's go and take a look at the text because we're going to see an altercation in the grain fields. And like so many of the stories that we get in Scripture, I, I, I want us to, to be able to visualize it. I, I want us to be there because it enriches it so much. So let's jump into the text here in the first verse of chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, now let's just stop it there. First thing he says is, on 
a Sabbath. Now notice that Luke is continuing to not give us any kind of timeline here. It's on a Sabbath or in one event, one day that this happened. So in other words, the timing here doesn't matter. There have been attempts to try to determine what time this is, what Sabbath this might be. But the gospel writers are not giving us a travel log. Jesus did this and the next day he did that. Matthew, for instance, puts this story much farther back in his gospel. They're telling us about Jesus. They're revealing the gospel to us. And so therefore, they organize things as they want. The important point here is that it is a Sabbath. And so the the idea turns, and he's going to turn to specific teachings on specific things, and he's going to actually get into his rendition of the Sermon on the Mount in this sixth chapter. But he's, first of all, going to give us this marvelous illustration of why he said what he said about the new wine and the old wineskins. There was no better example of why it wasn't going to work than the idea of the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath had become something in, in, in completely different under the Pharisees than it was uh, intended ever to be. Now, um, while he was going through the grain fields, this is what happened. Now, there's some questions that come to my mind. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the questions, but they're all unanswered questions. Okay, Why was Jesus in the grain fields on a Sabbath? What was he and his disciples doing? There was a rule that the Pharisees had that you couldn't walk any more than a thousand yards from your home on the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath. That was 1,999 paces. They were very specific about these rules. So if you're in a grain field, you're going to have to be on the outskirts of town. So what are Jesus, what's Jesus doing there? Are they coming back from one of their, ministry, their missions? Well, then that means that they're traveling on the Sabbath, and you couldn't do that either. Um, why was he in a grain field? Why did he not have any food on the Sabbath? Everyone knew, and it happens even now, you prepare your meals on Friday for Saturday, because Saturday is the Sabbath. So How is it that Jesus and his disciples are caught hungry in a grain field outside? We're not even told what town this is. We assume that it's Capernaum, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Matthew sort of gives us the idea that it is later on in his gospel. But you see, there's just some things that don't add up. What is Jesus doing here in the first place? Well, more than likely, I think that, of course, the text doesn't tell us, but more than likely, I think it is so this altercation will occur because it's an important one. All three of the synoptic gospels carry it. Now, the second thing that you may ask yourself when you look at this is, okay, maybe he's in the grain field. That's okay. Walking through the grain field, it seems to say, well, the grain fields were, they were sort of narrow and long, and there was a central path that went right down through the middle of it. So probably they're walking through a grain field, and what they're doing is eating the grain. And I don't know if your mind works this way, but my mind says, are they stealing Because these are fishermen. They don't have grain fields. They're not farmers. So they're in someone else's grain field on the Sabbath eating his food. So is that stealing? Well, you'll notice that the Pharisees don't accuse them later on of, hey, you were stealing. And the reason that they didn't is because they weren't. Because the Old Testament took this into consideration. The Old Testament provided for the poor and needy. For instance, Deuteronomy says this in the 23rd chapter, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in other words, it's against the law to go in and harvest your neighbor's grain, but anyone who was hungry could go into the field or they could go into um, a vineyard and eat enough to, uh, to take care of the immediate hunger that they had. That was something that God established as part of his law, looking out for the poor and needy. So, no, they're, they're, they're not stealing to be there in the, the Sabbath. Um, the, 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 the importance is of the Sabbath, and that brings our attention back to that. 
Now, why was it that the Sabbath was so important to the Pharisees? In modern Christendom, we have a hard time of understanding this. We have devalued the Sabbath to such a point that it is hard for us to comprehend the degree of importance that the Pharisees placed on this. And the reason was, is that it almost defined first century Judaism. There were two parts of being a Jew that really defined who they were. One was circumcision, and that was hugely important to them. But by first century Judaism, the second one had really sort of taken precedent, and that was the Sabbath. And there were so many rules surrounding the Sabbath. Now, why was the Sabbath so important to the Pharisees of those days? Well, probably because of all the commandments, it's the only one that was grounded in creation. And you know the story, you know that God in creation, he established the Sabbath on the seventh day when he rested. Now, the law of the Sabbath is not established until much later at Mount Sinai when God gives Moses the law that humans must keep the Sabbath. But God established the idea of the Sabbath at at creation, so it is a creation ordinance, and that's the reason that it is so important. So these battle lines, I've told you this last week, these battle lines are beginning to be drawn, almost like two football teams that are, are, are coming up to the line of scrimmage, getting ready to do battle. Well, as far as the Pharisees and the rest of the Jews were concerned, there was virtually nothing that Jesus taught or said that angered them more than the Sabbath than perhaps his claim to be the Messiah. Boy, that really infuriated them. But it struck at the very core of what they considered to be their religion, and it was a religion of human achievement, and Jesus came to save or to recapture the Sabbath from them, and we're going to see exactly how that takes place. Well, I want you to visualize what's going on. Um, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now, just stay with me here because I want you to visualize this, okay? here's, Here's the action. The disciples were plucking the grain, then they were rubbing it in their hands. Now, implied but not stated here is that they're blowing the chaff away because that's what happens. You have a little kernel of of wheat that is encompassed by some chaff that cannot be digested, so they would blow it away, and then you would take the kernel and put it in your mouth. Okay? That's the action. Do you get it? Pluck, rub, Blow, store, all right? And that's going to be important later on when we see why the Pharisees were so upset at at the disciples. And by the way, I told you you that timing wasn't important, but the fact that the grain is ripe and can be eaten tells us that we're either in springtime, probably April, or in summertime, June, July, were the two times that they had grain harvest. And heads of grain is the right translation. The New King James or the King James has uh, ears of corn, which is not. In fact, you, can, you don't do this with ears of corn to, to, to get the chaff off. But nonetheless, it, it, it is a grain um, harvest. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look at the objection from the Pharisees. Look in the second verse. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Well, I have a question. What are the Pharisees doing there? I mean, what are you doing in the field? Because after all, you have this law that won't let you go more than a thousand um, yards from your home, and you know the field's on the outskirts of town. So what are they doing? Taking a Sabbath stroll that just takes them to the boundaries of where they can walk? More than likely, and you know this, that already... Jesus has become public enemy number one as far as they're concerned. And I would imagine they actually have Pharisees that are assigned, okay, you take it today, I'll take it tomorrow. We're going to follow these guys and we're going to dig up dirt on them. 
Okay, we're going to find things to incriminate them. And you know something? Jesus was more than happy to oblige. Uh, He just didn't. He is such an in-your-face teacher. He never tried to hide anything. He's telling and teaching the truth. And so therefore, he's going to, you're not going to hide this in the slightest bit as, as, as they object. Okay, so notice the way that they formed that question is why do you do, or why are your disciples doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, that's sort of disingenuous in the way that they word that, because it gives the impression that Jesus and his disciples are breaking the law of God. But they're not. Once again, remember we talked about fasting and how they were upset because Jesus wasn't fasting like they were, acting as if they were breaking the law of God. But there's only one prescribed fast in all the Old Testament, and it wasn't on the same day. And so therefore, they're making out like Jesus and his disciples are literally breaking the law, but they're not. They're just breaking the traditions of the Pharisees. Now, Brother Will read you earlier from Deuteronomy. Let me read what Scripture actually says about the commandment to observe the Sabbath from Exodus this time. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, set apart, holy to the Lord. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You are your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in within your gates. Now notice that the commandment itself doesn't mention what kind of work not to do. It, it, it talks about who is bound by that commandment. It's all inclusive there. But it doesn't tell you what constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work. And that is the exact area that the scribes and Pharisees have filled in with a multitude of their own laws. Now, Scripture does give us a little bit of an idea of some things that were acceptable and some things that weren't uh, on the Sabbath, and they're scattered throughout Scripture. For instance, later on in Exodus, we will hear that plowing and harvesting is not allowed, and it's implied that it's not allowed because it just says you shall not do any work at harvest and plowing time. Um, Later on in um, 1 Samuel, we we read that... um, uh, I'm sorry, later on in Jeremiah, we learned that you're not supposed to carry anything at all. In Numbers, we see that a man was actually uh, executed for collecting sticks on the Sabbath. Nehemiah talks about the, the fact that they were buying and selling on the Sabbath. So the scripture tells us a little bit about what to do and not do on the Sabbath, but nowhere near the kind of rules and regulations that the Pharisees had put on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know if you remember when we talked about fasting, we said that, oh, there's there's all kinds of uh, instances in the Old Testament where people fast, and it was a good thing. In other words, you would fast in order to grow closer to God. It was a means to an end. But when you have a religion of human achievement, what happens so often is that the means becomes an end in itself. And that's what had happened with fasting. Well, that is certainly what has happened with the Sabbath. They originally wanted to buffer the law of God. And that's the way they went about it. We're going to buffer it. And the way we're going to buffer it is we're going to create laws around it. This wasn't just the Sabbath. It was all the laws. We're going to create all kinds of laws around it so that you have to break one of those first before you even get to the law of God. For instance, the law that you shall not commit adultery. Well, they added a law saying that a man and a woman can't be alone together unless they're married because that just sort of precludes the the, the whole uh, ability to to commit adultery. So you're going to have to get past that law to get to the law that was the severe law. They apparently never heard of the idea of the heart of the law. And Jesus, of course, brought that out in his Sermon on the Mount. And so that's the reason that they had put all these laws around the Sabbath. But they were ridiculous. I mean, by the time of Jesus... The rabbis in what is known as the Mishnah, which is rabbinical writings, they had identified 39 different categories of work that could not be done 
on the Sabbath, and each category had a whole slew of specifics. And they, 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 they ran everywhere from the obvious to the absolutely absurd. Now, if I were to, to go into all of the crazy rules that, that, that they had, we'd be here for a month because they were just that many of them. But let me just give you an idea of some of those rules and, and how restrictive and obsessive they were. You heard me read from Jeremiah, or stated it from Jeremiah, that you're not to carry a burden of any kind. Well, okay, but what constitutes a burden? A burden. How do you define burden? I mean, that's what they decided they're going to have to do. Now, to me, a burden is something that you carry that's kind of work-oriented. Well, they defined a burden as anything that weighed more than two dried figs, Okay. And so if you carry a pomegranate, you're breaking the the Sabbath. And you can either carry two dried figs or you can carry one dried fig twice. Okay? So you couldn't do that. Now, so there were laws against carrying any kind of burden that was more than a, a, a a couple of dried figs. And that was really restrictive. Um, And so it, it made it impossible to move anything. But you could wear things. That was okay. In fact, one of the, the brilliance of the Pharisees, and we've talked about this in, in other studies, the idea of their casuistry, the, 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 uh, the spin that they put on, they were brilliant in how to break their own laws. Seriously, that's what they spent so much time doing. That's what Jesus says when you, when you don't make a, a vow. He was talking about the way that they had gotten around uh, not making a vow and the casuistry that was involved with that. Well, one of the ways that they get around not carrying a burden is that it's okay to wear something and walk around with it. So in other words, if you have a robe and you pick it up and you carry it to the next room, you're breaking the Sabbath. But if you have a robe and you put it on, carry it to the next room, take it off, you're not breaking the Sabbath. So the idea was how to incorporate your burdens in your wardrobe so that you could carry stuff on the Sabbath. You see, see how ridiculous it, it, it gets? And, and it even gets more uh, picky. In other words, you could, if you pick something up in a public place, you couldn't put it down in a public place. You had to put it down in a private place. Now, if you had something in your hand and you threw it in the air and you caught it with the other hand, then you're breaking the Sabbath. If you threw it up and caught it in the same hand, you're not breaking the Sabbath. Okay? Um, I, I've already told you that they had this 1,000-yard rule, 3,000 feet, about the three football fields, just over a half a mile. That was as far as you could walk on the Sabbath. But again, they were brilliant at finding ways around it because that's how far you can walk from your home to the boundary of where it is, 1,999 paces. But if you wanted to go farther, what you had to do is just redefine home. So since home is where you ate, if you went and hit a meal, 1,998 paces, and then you sat down and had it, well, that redefines home so you can go another 1,998 paces. So if grandma lives 9,000 yards away, then you have to eat nine meals to go visit her on the Sabbath, but you could do it. I think some of my favorite ones are the ones that surround plowing, okay? Remember, you, you, you can't lift anything, so if you have a chair and you want to sit down and it's pushed up to the table, you couldn't lift it up, but you'd have to be careful when you scooted it because a dusty place, an arid place, there's dust on the floor. If you scooted the, the chair and it furrowed the dust on the floor, that's plowing, okay? You've plowed your floor, and so you've broken the Sabbath. I think my favorite has to do with spitting, okay? This is my favorite uh, of, of, of the rules. You're walking down the street, and of course, as I said, it's dusty, so there's a, you know, a powdery dust on top of the street. So if you expectorate and your spit makes a furrow in the dust, you've broken the Sabbath because you've plowed. 
Now, you can spit on a rock or on somebody's house or in their face all you want to on the Sabbath, and you're perfectly fine. But if you spit in some dust, then you've broken the Sabbath. Now, you see, when I, when I talk about the fact that the new wine is not going to fit into the old wineskins, I think you can see why Jesus would say that. This old, tired-out legalism, this human achievement, these rules and regulations around God's Sabbath destroy the Sabbath, destroy the whole joy of worship that the Sabbath is designed to be given as a gift. And so Jesus had quite a bit to overcome as far as the mindset of the Sabbath. And of course, every time that he went after the Sabbath, he's going after the control that the Pharisees had on the people. Okay, with, with that sort of as a, an idea of the Sabbath, let's go back to the text. Because remember, I, I told you to remember those actions that were happening. Why do you think the Pharisees got so mad at Jesus' disciples doing something that the law said you can do, which is to stop into somebody's field and, and, and pick the grain? Well, again, notice in the actions, plucking, rubbing, blowing, storing. When I pluck, I'm harvesting. When I rub it in my hands, I'm threshing. When I... Blow the chaff away, I'm winnowing. And when I eat it, I'm storing it in the barn. Okay? Absurd. But that's why they're mad. That's why they're upset. That's why they are accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And that's the reason that Jesus responds in the way that he does. And you'll notice that it's a mildly sarcastic response. And Jesus would often do this when confronted with something that had twisted the law of God, or as he says later on, to teach as commandments the traditions of man. And that's exactly what they're doing. And that's the reason Jesus is going to come right after them in a couple of amazing statements. So let's take a look there at um, verse 3. And Jesus answered, have you not read? Well, of course they've read. These are the Pharisees. They could quote this entire story that he's going to give from David. You, they, they read it and, and they knew where it was, but they did not understand the heart of any of God's laws. They had turned them into legalistic things that were burdens that they strapped on people's backs and had lost the original meaning of what the law was. And so therefore they had lost the reason that God established a Sabbath in the first place. And so Jesus is going to change it. And, 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 and you may remember the way he talked to Nicodemus in the third chapter of John. Remember that when he says you must be born again and Nicodemus just didn't understand that. And Jesus said, you're, you're the teacher of Israel and you have such a low level of understanding well, that's exactly what he's saying right now. You just don't get it. You don't get the reason that God set the law apart, the Sabbath apart, and made it holy. And so he gives them an example out of 1 Samuel. Let's read the rest of that verse. Have you not read, and, and the next verse, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took um, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a real delicate issue here. And it is one that has been terribly abused in the history of the church. It is being terribly abused right now. And, and so I'm, I, let me just tell you right off the bat, I'm not going to be able to do it justice here in the message I'm going to talk about it in much greater length in the after church. And so if you're left with questions about what I'm about to say, of how Jesus is using this, then stay for the after church because you can ask me questions and I'm going to go into it. We're going to go back and read the first Samuel um, passage actually and, and put it into its perspective. But basically Jesus summarizes one of the great stories of the Old Testament. David has just been thrown out of Saul's presence. Saul's trying to kill him. Jonathan has said he's going to kill you. They've made a covenant together. David has escaped with a couple of his close um, followers, his mighty 
men, if you will. And they end up at Nob, which is about a mile and a half, two miles north of Jerusalem. And apparently that's where the tabernacle was in those days. Tabernacle that Moses built when they were in the, the desert. Um, it doesn't sound like the Ark of the Covenant is there, but the, the rest of the implements in the holy place, meaning the menorah, the altar of incense, and the showbread table are there. So David gets there with his friends, and they're starving. They're famished. And he asks the priests, give us some food. And the priest says, I don't have any common bread. All I've got is the bread of the presence. And if you're not familiar with the importance of the bread of the presence, stick around for the after church. But it was a bread sanctified, made holy. It was on the showbread table. It was baked fresh every week by the priest. They would exchange it out. It represented God's continued sustenance and provision of his people, both spiritual and physical. And so the only people who could eat that bread was, the, the priest. In, in other words, it shall be for Aaron and his son, and they shall eat it in a holy place since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now what's amazing is not only does David ask for and get this bread, but the priest actually gives it to him. So why did Jesus refer to this Story, which is confusing in and of its own right. Is David sinning egregiously? Is this something that another example like Bathsheba of David doing something sinful? Or, or, or is this perfectly legitimate for him to do? Well, it sounds like Jesus legitimizes it, doesn't it? Because he's justifying why his disciples are in the field eating grain. And he points back and he says, look what David did. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying, as we might say, David did it, so I can do it, right? If David can get away with doing that, then I can do it too. But we know that two wrongs don't make a right. And so we know that that is not what Jesus is saying. Now, kind of listen to me carefully. Don't get this wrong. But it's not so much what they're doing as it is who's doing it. And, and so this doesn't apply to us, okay? In lots of places in Scripture, we can look at it and we can say, ah, that applies to me. Well, this doesn't apply to you, okay? It doesn't apply to me. This applies to David and it applies to Jesus because David is God's anointed. He's his anointed king. And God had set aside the showbread, these, these bread of the presence. He'd set it aside for his purposes. He'd made them holy. That means that God decides what they are, who can eat it and who can't. Now, on a normal basis, that's the priest and that's the way it was set up. But David is also God's anointed. David's not above the law. I'm not saying he's above the law. But I am saying that there is something greater than the, the, the bread of the presence who is there. It is God's plan. It is God's anointed one. And that's the reason Jesus is making the reference. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. I am God's anointed. And so he's not going to nitpick with the Pharisees about whether or not this is actually a law that was being broken because he easily could have done that because this is not a biblical law. But Jesus chooses to boot the entire conversation up a bit to use it as, a, as, as an opportunity to once again reveal who he is in the most profound way. And that's the reason I'm not going to go any further into that very delicate situation. Let me tell you why I say it's delicate. It's because, as I said, it matters who is doing this. David is God's anointed. Jesus is God's anointed. The apostles anointed by Christ for a specific purpose. You and I are anointed by the Holy Spirit when we are regenerated, but we are not God's anointed. You are not Jesus, you're not David, and you're not the apostles. And so certain things God would fulfill. It's not that the laws are being broken or that they're above the law. God is fulfilling the intent of that law through his anointed and that is exactly the argument that Jesus makes. In other words, almost as if to say, uh, th this isn't breaking the law. But if it was, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man or the Sabbath. Someone greater than the temple is here. In other words, God incarnate. And that's, where, that's why I want to go to the next verse because this is the huge verse that he says. He goes into the fifth verse and he says, He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now we're going to divide that into two different parts, Son of Man and then Lord of the Sabbath. Both of them profound in what Jesus says. First of all, the Son of Man. Unfortunately, many people believe and quite a few people actually teach that the title Son of Man refers to the humanity of Jesus and that the title Son of God refers to his divinity. Um, Actually, that's not the case. We don't want to get too cute, too too, um, uh, dogmatic about making the distinction because there is some overlap. But when we talk about the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite title for himself. I think he used it something like 63 times uh, in the Gospels and quite often to talk about his suffering. But when we talk about the Son of Man, I used to say that it refers to the cosmic Christ. Now the heretics have taken that phrase and assigned a different meaning to it, so I can't say cosmic Christ anymore. But I can tell you that it refers to Jesus in the outworking of the eternal decree of God as it was manifested in redemptive history. In other words, it is Jesus' place as the Messiah in the entire eschatological plan of redemptive history. Before the foundations of the world were laid, the three members of the Trinity determined that the Son, the second member, would put aside his glory, would take on the attributes of a human, would live on the earth, would be crucified on a cross, dead and buried, resurrected on the third day, ascended thereafter, taken to heaven and coronated King of kings and Lord of lords. That is Jesus as the Son of Man. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when the seed of the woman will indeed crush the head of the seed of the serpent and then God begins to unfold his redemptive history all the way through the Old Testament, all the covenants bringing it to its culmination in Jesus Christ. Okay, So when Jesus uses the term Son of Man, boy, it is a loaded term. And it means his divine presence. Daniel, I think, is the one who really sets this in in place for us. Going all the way back 500-something years before this, in his seventh chapter, this is what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And those of you who have been here know that I see that as the continuation of Acts 1. Because when Jesus ascended to heaven, he departs on the clouds of heaven. And here Daniel sees him 500 and something years before in a vision coming into the presence of the Father on the same cloud. And look what happens to him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is what the Son of Man means. That's the designation that when you talk about the Son of Man, we are talking about the divine Christ who's King of kings and Lord of lords and rules his kingdom from the right hand of God the Father Almighty even now. And I will also remind you that we have already seen in Luke the use of that title. And it was associated when Jesus did something that no human being could do. And even the Pharisees recognized it. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, just so you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, pick up your bed and walk. The guy picks his bed up and walk. That proves it. Along that line's The title is the Son of Man. So we've already established just a few verses before in Luke that when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in this context, he's referring to his deity, his divineness. But it's what he says next that really blows this whole verse, just just blows the, the minds of those who try to comprehend it when he says that the Son of Man, meaning himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
That, just put that into context. First of all, the word Lord, you, most of you are familiar with that. Underlying that is the Greek word kurios. And it is used in a variety of different ways in Scripture. It can be anything from a pleasant greeting to a human master to God. And when it is used in this context, what it refers to is sovereign. So what Jesus is saying is the Son of Man, meaning me, is sovereign over the Sabbath. And and, and when you're sovereign over something... You have complete rule over that, complete authority, absolute sovereignty means that there is complete control for that entity. So Jesus has just said that I have sovereignty over the Sabbath. Where did the Sabbath come from? How did we get the Sabbath? Who created the Sabbath? Who made it holy and who blessed it? Let's go back to Genesis 2 because that's where the Sabbath was established. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay? That's the the creation of a day of rest, the Sabbath day. Now listen carefully, because this is what he says. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Do you understand what is being said here? God and God alone has authority over the Sabbath. God and God alone created the Sabbath. He blessed it. He made it holy. God and God alone is sovereign over the Sabbath. And Jesus, this young man from the podunk town of Nazareth, son of a carpenter, has the audacity to say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You can understand why C.S. Lewis said he is either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. That's the essence of this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is presented to you as he is. Jesus is God. He is the second member of the Godhead in human form. God incarnate, the Word who became flesh, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This is no ordinary man. This is God incarnate, and it has profound meaning to you and to me. So let me kind of wrap this up. I want you to understand something that Jesus, by asserting his authority over the Sabbath, is not saying, I'm going to throw the Sabbath out. It's no longer important anymore. He could no more do that than he could go against his own creation of the Sabbath because it was God who created the Sabbath and blessed it and made it holy. It was God who gave the commandment to Moses in his moral law that is still in place today. Now we're forgiven, but the law still stands. And so therefore, only God, God would never go against his own work in that way. So Jesus is not throwing the Sabbath out. He is not making it irrelevant. He is not devaluing it as we have done in modern Christendom. In fact, he's preserving it. Can you see this? The new wine cannot fit into the old wine skins because it will burst the skins and all the wine will pour out on the floor. In other words, there's something worth preserving. I want new wine skins because the wine is important. And part of what the wine is, is the Sabbath as it was intended to be. It is not the Sabbath that Jesus is throwing out. It's the tired old legalistic comprehension of the Sabbath or the tired old ascetic comprehension that the the disciples of John the Baptist had. That needs to be thrown away. That's that garment that's old and beat up and has a hole in it. Let's get rid of that. But let's put the new wine in a new wineskin because the Sabbath needs to return to what it was. It needs to return to the blessing and the gift and the privilege that God has given his people. Now, in good reform fashion, I have three points to that message. First of all, let me go back and let me just reestablish something here. 
um, in stating that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And I hope I've made this clear. That's huge. Okay, that's huge. Jesus has claimed without question that he is God. And I said that's the reason that C.S. Lewis made this statement, that and other reasons, that you know, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Now, let me explain what that does to you. It makes it impossible for you to diminish Jesus to just an ethical teacher. It makes it impossible for you to de-supernaturalize him. It makes it impossible for him, for you to say, well, he was a nice little teacher. He brought a nice little ethical standard and he told us to love each other and we need to follow that. But all that superstitious, supernatural stuff, walking on water, born of a virgin, rising from the dead, I don't believe any of that. Well, if you don't believe that, you don't believe in Jesus. Because that's the biblical Jesus. That is the way that Jesus is presented to us. And if he is not that Jesus, then he's a liar or he's a lunatic and we don't need to be paying any attention to him. C.S. Lewis also said, and I paraphrase it, he says, you know something, if Jesus is not who he said he was, then he is of absolutely no importance. If he is who he said he was, then he is of supreme importance. The one thing he cannot be is moderately important. Either you're sold out to the God of creation who walked amongst us and taught us how to live and redeemed us and gave us his righteousness, or you don't believe in Jesus at all. You've created an idol after your own manufacture, just like the Pharisees did, and that idol cannot save anyone. So therefore, we need to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Now, the big question that I have to ask you this morning is, is he your Lord? You see, without question, in biblical, the Bible teaches that Jesus is Lord. He is God. But is he yours? And, and, and don't answer too quickly. Because you've got to look at the mirror, folks. You've got to look at your life. You've got to ask yourself, am I... Uh, am I seeing Jesus in what I do? Can I step back, have a third out-of-body experience, look at me and see Jesus in some way manifest in me? Is there fruit? Because let me tell you something. If he is your savior, if Jesus is your savior, he has to be your Lord. It, 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 you, you can't say, okay, you know something, I'm going to keep my old lifestyle. I'm just going to be the way I want to. I'm going to fool around. I'm going to be like the world. But hey, I love Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Because you see, you're not the one who changes. This is not a religion of human accomplishment. This is a religion of, I'm sorry, human achievement. It's a religion of divine accomplishment. You are saved because he saves you and changes and regenerates your hearts. And if that happens, there's going to be something manifested in your life. You're going to desire to be like him, to follow him, to worship him. There's going to be a real desire to connect with him on the day that he is set aside for that. Second point I've already made is the inadequacy. I mean, the absolute inadequacy of religions of human achievement as far as accomplishing this. But I, 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 I just want to re-emphasize the point. So often what we do is we throw the baby out with the bathwater you know, we say that, okay, because, because it was so legalistic and Jesus spoke against it in the old days that, that we don't have to observe the Sabbath. It means nothing to us today. Now, I told you, I'm not going to chide you for not keeping the Sabbath because none of us do. I want you to see in a new perspective that you have been given a gift, a privilege. And that's what won't fit in the old legalistic system. You can't legalize the Sabbath. And truly enjoy it. It has to be something that out of your heart, because of a love for Jesus, you can't wait for the Sabbath. And the enemy just throws everything that he possibly can in your way, which brings us to the third point. And that's the reason I wanted you to reimagine the imagery of Jesus sitting in the midst, actually reclining at table in the midst of all those sinners. And don't consider yourself any better than any of those sinners because we are all exactly the same. We're all sewer rats living in this sewer. And Jesus has come to save us. In fact, he has come to fetch his bride out of this 
this group of sinners that we are. And, and, and to, to pay for our sins, to, to clean us up, if you will, to give us his righteousness. And then to leave us here with a purpose and a plan and a reason for being here until he takes us home. But the metaphor that we have, and it's one of the most beautiful metaphors in the New Testament, is that Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride. And he has come to fetch us, to, to marry us, if you will. I know that sounds weird for men, but that's exactly what the way the New Testament tells us. He's our husband in that sense, in a spiritual sense. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride. And he's given us a very special recaptured day for us to spend with him, for us to be quickened to his presence, for us to grow through the the means of grace in our relationship with him. And why is it that we fill it with everything else except him? And, And as I said, it's really hard for me to stop here because, boy, just as a pastor, I just want to really unleash because we abuse the Sabbath so terribly. But I, I want you to see it from the different perspective. I'm sure we're going to have a big crowd here next week. Because I'm telling you right now, that's where we're going to go next week. But I want you to see it in a much more positive way. The privilege that you have. The gift that you've been given. You know, to put it in human terms, when a, a couple gets married. A, a bridegroom and a bride. And... They go off to Niagara Falls for a week for, the, for their honeymoon. What a special time that is. We can, most of us, remember our honeymoons as special times, special time of intimacy, a special time of communion, a special time set aside just for the bridegroom and his bride. But imagine if this particular couple goes off to Niagara Falls and the bridegroom really wants this to be that special time that they will remember the rest of their lives, that time of their honeymoon, and the bride cannot get off her stupid phone. I mean, she's texting every friend she knows. Did you see my, my dress? Did you see my nails? Well, they were so special. Did you see my shoes? And blah, 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 on and on and on. The whole week she's on the phone doing something else rather than communing and having the special day with the bridegroom. I'm not going there. Uh, and all I want to do, as I, like I said, I'm not going to chide. All I want to do is I just want you to think about that. Think about that, and then think about the way you spend your Sabbath days. It is a day totally given to the Lord, where you feast with the bridegroom and you worship the Lord of the Sabbath. Now let me leave you with this. Every year about this time of year, the Lord impresses upon me some, some issue that we really need as a church. I'm really speaking to New Hope Community Church now. As a church that we need to focus on. It's not a New Year's resolution because I know if it's a New Year's resolution, we're not going to keep it. I know that we're not, it's not that at all. It is something that, that and it happens almost every year. I mean, one year it was prayer, another year it was missions, another year it was evangelism, outreach, another year it was worship. Well, this year what the Lord has put in my heart, and you're getting it this morning, you're going to get it again, is what are we going to do with the Sabbath? before the pandemic, and I understand the pandemic. Don't get me wrong. I understand. I understand we've been through two very difficult years, and people are, quite a lot of them are afraid for their health and even for their life because of the mass hysteria that has been created over this. But nonetheless, I understand that. But I believe that we're coming out of that. I believe we're going to see the pandemic turn into an endemic in that sense. Um, I, and I see that already is happening. So we, as a church, we need to make a decision. What are we going to do about the Sabbath? We used to have three services every Sunday. We now have one. We used to have Sunday school. We used to have children's church. We still have children's church. Sunday school is waning. Um, after church has replaced Sunday school. I'm teaching a Bible study on, uh, on Sunday night. Only a very few of you show up. We have Sunday night service. Only a very few of you will show up. How, how, how are we going to process that in, in the scope of what we've just read? The fact that the Sabbath, and I'm talking about the day of, for the Hebrews it was sundown to sundown, but the day of the Sabbath 
is a gift that God has given you. It is a privilege that he has given his people because he desires to commune and spend time with you. And he's created a situation so that we can get seven days of work done in six. He does that. He he did it with the man in the desert and he does it for us. He allows us to accomplish what we need to accomplish in six days, leaving the seventh or the Sabbath day, the first day of the week, the Lord's day, leaving that his day. So I don't have an answer for you right now. I want you to think about it. What are we as New Hope Community Church, what are we going to do with this day? How are we going to honor it? How are we going to go forward? I know what other churches are doing. I know that nobody has Sunday night services. I know that. But what are you doing on Sunday night? What, what are you occupying your time with? What's so important? If you're truly understanding the gift that you have been given to worship the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, I know that we, well, we do this so poorly. Um, no matter how well we do it, we're, we're not going to do it in, in the true heart of what the Sabbath was designed to be. Uh, There are so many distractions. We know the enemy attacks this day because he knows this is a day of growth. He knows that this is a day where we honor you and glorify you and that when we honor and glorify you, we are edified and we grow in leaps and bounds. And if he can snatch that away from us, then he can uh, snatch our development as Christians and what we do as a church. And so there's an all-out war over the Sabbath, just like there's getting ready to be one between Jesus and the Pharisees. I just pray, Lord, that you would guide us in this church. We can express the desire in our heart to honor you on this day. Show us how best to accomplish this. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.